0: Um, but we're so excited to jump into God's Word. Before we do that, I've, I've got some pictures that I want to show you because maybe you've heard this phrase, a picture is worth a thousand what? Words. All right, you're with me. Awesome. So I've got six pictures. I want you to see these. These are kind of iconic, famous pictures that you should recognize. Here's the first one. On February 23rd, 1945, you have the raising of the flag on Iwo Jima, Okay. Big time picture, people recognize this photograph. Or how about August 28th, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr., his I Have a Dream speech in Washington, D.C. Or maybe it's May 25th, 1965. If you're a sports fan, you think of Muhammad Ali, right, defeating Sonny Liston, right? There's this... One round, knockout, punch, it's over, okay? One of those moments, those iconic moments that we remember. We'll stay kind of in this sport realm for a moment. In February 22nd, 1980, you have the Miracle on Ice, Miracle on Ice, where the United States hockey team defeats the Soviet Union, right? It's a a huge victory. No one saw it coming. Maybe you watched the movie, Miracle on Ice, all right? July 20th, we'll go back about a decade one more time, 1969, Neil Armstrong, he's the first man on the moon, and lastly, September 11th, 2001, raising the flag at ground zero. All right, as you think about these six photographs, there's a lot of things maybe that would be in common, but I want to draw out one thing, victory. We just sang about it, right? Right? As you think about those those photographs, it's a picture of victory. Whether it was a past victory, some kind of overcoming, or maybe it's a present victory or something that's coming in the future. They're celebrating victory, the winning of a war, the accomplishment of winning the game, whatever it might be. And one of the things I love most about the Bible and specifically, as we've studied the, the story of Job over the last five or six weeks, is it's a story of victory, a story of victory, where we see the faithfulness of God, we see his promises being kept, and it gives us reason to glorify his name for all that he has done. So I want to review for you just a moment where we've been in this series and where we're going today. Today. If you can remember back in Job chapter 1, we talked about the reality of suffering. And if you're honest, this morning, we all have experienced suffering and hardship in our lives. We live in a world that's fallen and broken by sin. And so there's a reality of suffering that we face. We learned in week 2 of our series, Job chapter 2, that even though suffering exists and it's a reality of where we find ourselves, we're called to live lives of faith. We're called to live lives where we honor the Lord. We hold fast to his word amidst hardship and trial and suffering. Moving into week three, we looked at suffering and feelings. That feelings are real. That the emotions that we experience as we're walking through trials and suffering are not things that we should shove under the rug or just try to imagine that they're not there. Because as you look at the life of Job, there are honest feelings and hardship and the things that he's going through. Week 4 we looked at suffering and bad counsel. As so you see the conversation unfold between Job and his four friends. Right? They didn't give him very good advice. They didn't give him very good counsel. Over and over again you hear this refrain, Job, what'd you do? You had to do something. You must have sinned or done something wrong. Why would God allow this to happen? Why would you be going through all these trials and punishments and hardships if you didn't do anything? I think we can relate to this because in the times of suffering and hardship in our own lives, maybe we don't receive the best counsel. Last week we looked at Job's response then to God. God asks him in chapters 38 through 41 about 70 questions. One question after another after another. And what we read last week was Job's humble response. He submits his life to his God in humility in the hardest season of his life. Here's where we're going today. We see God's restoration in Job 42. And so before we open the text and look at the verses and where God has for us today, I want to highlight this main point for you. So if you want to jot this down somewhere, maybe it's in your phone or on your bulletin or in a journal. Here's what I believe is going on in the story of Job. And we see this kind of come into fruition as we come to the last part of the story. It's this reverence for God leads to a restored life. Reverence for God leads to a restored life. Now let me define some terms there. When we talk about reverence, what are we referring to? It's the truth that we are called to live our lives in fear of a holy God. That we're to deeply respect the Lord. That we would have an awe about us. That when we think about God and we think how amazing he is, that we would be just struck with wonder and amazement and awe Because of the God that we have the opportunity to serve. And so we're called to worship and honor and praise. That's reverence. So living a life, we we revere God. Reverence for God leads to a restored life. Let's talk about this term, restored. In an earthly perspective, to restore is simply to make something new. It's to bring something back. And so maybe you think of restoring a car or renovating a house. What you're doing is taking what is old or broken down and restoring that to its original quality or even better. When we think spiritually, that's what God has done for all of us, right? He's taken us, our old life, broken, fallen, messing it up with sin, and because of the blood of Jesus, he has saved us from all of our sin and given us a hope for the future. Restoration. When Jesus Christ will come back and he will make all things new. We have that hope as followers of Jesus. And so reverence for God as we look at the story of Job, I believe leads to his life being restored. Job 42, 7-17 this morning. First point, as we break this passage down, is this. God always has the final word. Say that again. God always has the final word. Look at verses 7 through 9. It says this. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, says, my anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. I want to highlight just a couple things before we move on from this verse because there's some important observations of the text that I want you to see. What's happening here in verses 7 through 9 is God is going to rebuke Job's friends for the words that they have said to him. While in the same breath he is going to encourage and, and commend Job for the words that he has said. Okay, I also want you to notice the number of times God refers to Job as my servant Job. Maybe you remember this from chapters 1 and 2. When the conversation between Satan and God was taking place, how did God refer to Job? My servant Job. All right? So there is a closeness. There is a relationship. It, it tells us that Job's relationship with the Lord, his faith in God was real, right? that he truly loved the Lord. My servant Job, he says. Verse 8. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. It's interesting. If you remember back to the conversation between Job and his friends, right, they're calling Job foolish. Right? They are belittling him and calling him a sinner and that you've messed it up for some reason because all of this has happened to you. And in reality, here's where God sets the record straight. He says, no, actually, friends of Job, you're the foolish ones, not Job. Your words were wrong." His words were right. Moving on, it says, For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Right? It says it two times Right in three verses. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Right? So to a certain extent, his friends are obedient to what God has called them to do, right? He says, go to Job. He'll offer sacrifice for you. He'll pray on your behalf. And that's exactly what they do. And then we read that God is good as he always is on his promises. He promised them that if they go to Job, he will pray for them and that he will hear their prayer and he will respond. That's exactly what happens here in the text. I love these verses because it shows us the character of our God that God always, always, always has the final word. God is reaffirming Job here in these verses, reaffirming his character, reaffirming his faith in his God. Um, as I read these verses, it reminds me of times when I was uh, a younger boy, right? I'm, my birthday today, right? Uh, when I was younger. Um, my brother is about six years younger than I, and we would often play in the basement, especially during the winter time when there's nowhere else to go outside. And we would play basketball or football. We would often play pool or video games, anything that involved competition, we were doing it. All right? but I'm older, so I was always winning. And so we would start arguing and we'd fight in the basement. And I can, I can hear it today like I heard it then. I'd hear from upstairs, my dad would say something along the lines of this. I don't care who started it, I'm going to finish it, right? Anybody else ever heard that? I don't care who started it, I'm going to finish it. Basically what that means is figure it out or I'll figure it out for you, okay? Um, The conversation ends here. And, And what I love about this text is you look at how God interacts with Job and how he interacts with his friends. I mean, God could have stepped in a long time ago, but in his perfect timing, In his sovereign control, he steps in now and he has the final word. And he deals with each of the main characters in the story of Job in a very quick manner. Let me just summarize real quick again what God does. God rebukes Job's friends, verse 7. He says, you spoke the wrong words while Job spoke the right words. Now, certainly Job, we we read the verses and we had the sermon where he is kind of um, asking questions of God and he's not sure what's going on. So certainly Job expressed deep anguish and frustration as he walked through these trials. But what God is saying here is that he doesn't count Job's words as sinful. And you get the sense in the text that Job never lost his desire to be in the presence of God, to be in close relationship with his creator. So God rebukes Job's friends. God instructs Job's friends to go to Job, offer sacrifice. Job will pray on your behalf. And then God accepts Job's prayer, verse 9. And again, think about the character of Job here in this passage. He is a man of blameless character, we learn in, in chapters 1 and 2. Blameless character, upright, steadfast, all these good qualities. But I would want to add one to the list. He's forgiving. Because these are the same friends that over and over and over questioned his character, came down on him, and kind of beat him up while he was in his season of suffering. And now he is praying for them. Let's be honest, it is difficult to pray for those we have not first forgiven. He's praying for them. He is lifting them before the Lord. It's a beautiful picture of God's mercy and Job's faithfulness. We see God always has the final word. Here's the application, church. As we think about these verses, I would challenge you to silence the accuser. And to amplify the advocate. Silence the accuser. Amplify the advocate. What do I mean by this? As we look at God's word, how, what is one way that it describes Satan? He's the accuser of the brethren, right? Revelation chapter 12. He's the accuser. And so on the front end of the sin, not saying that Job sinned, but in our lives, I want to kind of put this in our perspective. God is tempting us. Or, sorry, God doesn't tempt us. Satan is tempting us. He's whispering lies and thoughts in our ear. And when we do fall short and we sin, then what does he do? See, I told you he'd do that. You're not worthy. You're not worthy of the love of God. He wants us to feel that regret and that shame and that pain. And so when we think of our lives and how we walk in faithfulness to God, we're called to silence the accuser and to amplify the advocate. One verse that comes to mind as we think about this incredible truth of turning up the noise of God's incredible words toward us, the advocate Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 2 verse 1 says it this way, "My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate" With the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So as you think about your life, whether you are facing an attack from the enemy or you're facing an attack from someone else, God calls us to turn down the noise, to silence the accuser, and to lift up, to lift high the words of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, how do we know those words? Here's my action step. Here's my challenge for you. I want to challenge you this week to study God's word every day. Every day. As you think about this month of March, if you were here last week, we're doing a grow focus where we're challenging our people every day to be studying God's word, to be reading God's word, to be listening to the voice of God amidst the chaos and the attacks that we find ourselves in. So my challenge for you this week, just one week, make it a point to spend time in God's word because this is the sword of truth. It's how we fight the accuser. It's how we lift up the truth, the voice of God in our lives. If you're looking for something to start with, I'm currently studying the the book of Galatians and I'd love for you to join me. I'd love to hear what God is teaching you, how his spirit is leading you into all truth. And that we as a body of Christ would be known as people, people of the word of God. That we make this the standard of our lives. God always has the final word. Here's the second truth this morning. God restores the redeemed. God restores the redeemed. Look at verses 10 through 17 with me. It says this. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. When? When he Had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters, and all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep. That's a lot of sheep, right? 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys, right? Just a huge amount of livestock does Job have. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of his first daughter Aunt Jemima. No, it's not in there. It's just, it's, it's just Jemima. But that does sound good right now. And it says this, and the name of the second was Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Hapuk. These are tough words, right? Bear with me. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. Translation, if you're a single man in Job's day, you would have noticed them. They were very beautiful women, the text tells us. They were beautiful women. And it says, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. This is not typical. This didn't normally happen during Job's day. It was usually just the sons that got the inheritance. But now the daughters are getting an inheritance as well. Verse 16. And after this, Job lived 140 years. Commentators describe this amount of time as the double lifespan. They take this from Psalm 90 where it says something to the effect that the average lifespan is to be about 70 years. And so the fact that Job lives 140 is this double portion, this double blessing that God is giving to him. And it says he saw his sons, one generation, and his sons' sons, right? Four generations. It's this ancient ideal of a long life, right? That, that he saw four generations of his family tree and had the opportunity to pray for them and impact them throughout their lives it says, verse 17, and Job died an old man full of days. And so let's talk about how God restored Job's life here. It's an amazing story where we see the, the, the tragedy, the testing of Job, and all that he went through. And now it comes together here at the end, and God restores him to a re- relationship with those around him, and even his own life personally. God restores the redeemed. How how would you describe the word redeemed? If you've grown up in church or you've kind of been around Christianity for any time, it's a word that we throw out. But what does it mean? As we think about this word redeemed, it's to pay for something. It's to erase the debt that someone owes. And so as we put this in the perspective, the context of our life as followers of Jesus... When Jesus came onto this earth and lived a sinless life, but then went to a cross and died a sinner's, a criminal's death, when he died for our sins, he redeemed, right? He redeemed us. And so when we believe in that message and we trust him as our Savior, we have the opportunity to be redeemed, to be purchased by the blood of the Lamb, by Jesus Christ. And so as we think about the story of Job, remember back in chapter 19, where, where Job says, like, I know, he has this confidence, my Redeemer lives and I will stand, Job says. So God restores the redeemed. We see that in Job's life. We see that in our lives today. And what I love about the God that we serve is that he's still in this restoring business. He still takes broken people, And through salvation and working through the spirit in our lives, he creates us into new creations. He takes our mess, and you could say he takes our mess and turns it into a masterpiece. Now when I think about the word mess, there's a story, a recent story that comes to mind. Um, We passed many winter afternoons this year by throwing football, my, my son and I, in our living room. Right? And if my grandma were here, she would say, you shouldn't horseplay in the house, Adam, right? You shouldn't do that. We did anyways, right? And so we've got this little football that we like to play catch with. And he'll run like a skinny fade route behind the couch. And I'll drop it, you know, over the top. Catch, touchdown, Buckeyes. Like we're celebrating the win in the living room at the Reilly house. It was a great father-son moment until quarterback threw it a little short. Right. He did catch it, all right? It's not my son's fault. It's my fault. So he catches the ball. When he turns to walk away, he catches his foot on the lamp cord, all right? So the lamp falls, hitting the candle that was lit, okay? And it had been on for a while. Uh, It wasn't just lit, so it was a lot of wax. So (laughs) lamp, candle, wax, carpet, right? And at least it wasn't like a bright blue color. That's the color it was, all right? It was bright blue, okay? And so what we had on our hands was a huge mess, huge mess. And so the father-son moment ended, right? We're on our hands trying to scrub it out and it's not working. Um, So long story short, we had a mess on our hands. And when I think about God and what he has done for me, right, the mess of my life, would have been impossible to clean up apart from Jesus. And I think if you're honest with yourself this morning, that's the reality of every single one of us. We're a mess. But by God's grace, he takes our mess and he makes it into a masterpiece. He redeems us. He makes us new. So the question is, when did God restore Job? Look back at verse 10. It says, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when, it's like it's a time stamp for us, right? When he had prayed for his friends. It's pretty clear. So it's not based on some confession of sin, right? That's when he was restored. That's not the case here in the story of Job. No, we, we look at where Job is. He is humbly submitted to God, he is broken. He is in ashes. He is weeping, but at the same time, he is worshiping and praising his God, even though he walks through all of these painful, suffering experiences in his life. He's humbly submitted to God. He's forgiving his friends. He's forgiving his family. He's praying to God on their behalf. And it's at that moment that restoration comes. God had given him an instruction Pray for your friends. He was obedient. And it says at that moment, God restored him. So how did God restore Job's life? Two kind of broad categories. First, Job's relationships were restored. Job's relationships were restored. Anyone have broken relationships? Yeah? We live in a, in a world where there's a lot of brokenness around us and a lot of times it, it kind of naturally gravitates toward relationships that get broken. And the beautiful storyline of Job is that God is restoring his relationships right before his eyes. He's praying for his friends and God is responding to his prayers. His family, his brothers and sisters who had abandoned him, during his season of suffering, are now returning to him. They're eating with him, bringing him gifts, and comforting him. that's That's what Job desired throughout the whole book, is the comfort that he needed. And so you're seeing the pieces be put back together of Job's relationships and the restoration that needed to happen. His relationships were restored. The second thing we see in Job's story is that Job was restored personally personally he himself was restored in verses 12 through 17 we can talk about his possessions right, we, we read it already but his possessions were doubled his livestock increased right he had more than he did before God blessed him in incredible ways we also see his children right, he still grieves the loss of those that he lost before But God brings him seven boys and three girls again, restoring him, blessing him. And lastly, Job was restored through his health. He at one time had sores all over his body. He was cast to the outside of the community of society. Nobody wanted anything to do with him. He was broken and he was unhealthy, and he was walking through all kinds of physical pain. But now in this moment, his health returns. And not only that, he lives for 140 years. God restores the redeemed. And what I love about the New Testament, as we look to James chapter 5, is it picks up the storyline of Job. It kind of summarizes for us some of these things that we've been talking about. It says it this way. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Right? Remember that word, steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Job was a man of steadfast character, a man of steadfast faithfulness. Amidst the hardest suffering of life, he holds firm to his God, his Redeemer. But the question I believe that many of us ask as we read the conclusion to Job is this. Well, What if the happily ever after story of Job doesn't come true in my life? in this earthly life. What then? Because we, are, we know that it doesn't always go this way. Right? That, that cancer and other sickness leads at times to death. That there are hardships and seasons of suffering that seem to go on without end. And so how do we make sense of all of this in the life of Job? I want to give you one application, something to consider as we process this question it's this wait with hope filled wonder wait with hope filled wonder let me talk about these two big terms wait and wonder when i use the term wait what i mean is there's a there's a beauty of living life with patience right contentment satisfaction what, what god has given to you the portion that he has given To you, it's the idea of long suffering, waiting on the perfect timing and the sovereign plan of the Lord and how that plays out in our lives. We can't fully understand this side of eternity. So we wait with hope filled wonder, right? Because as believers, we of all people have reason for hope. We have reason for hope. No matter how bad this life gets, we have hope in Christ. On the worst days, on the worst weeks, on the worst months, we have hope that we will be with Christ for all of eternity. And then there's the word wonder, which brings us back to our main point of reverence. But I love the definition that Webster's Dictionary gives. I know it's not a theological source, but I love this definition It says this about wonder. It says, a feeling of surprise mingled with admiration caused by something beautiful, unexpected, unfamiliar, and inexplicable. We serve a God who is greater than all of us. His wisdom is unsearchable. His knowledge is unattainable. He is so much bigger and grander than we are, and he has our best interest in mind. And we will struggle to make sense of those realities in this life. But we wait with wonder, knowing that we serve a life-giving God, a God of hope, a God of peace, and one that we can trust for everything that we go through in life. So here's my my challenge, the action step that I want to leave you with. I want you to think of one thing that you're waiting on. Just one thing. Because if, if we had time this morning and we don't to go all the way around this room and have you share that one thing, I bet every single one of you is waiting on something. It could be a huge thing. Maybe you're waiting on test results. Or maybe it's a small thing. You've got a question. You're not sure which step to take next in your future or the decision that you need to make in your family. What's the one thing you're waiting on? And here's what I want you to do. I want you to write it down somewhere. So again, bulletin, margin of your Bible, somewhere in a note on your phone. What's the one thing that you are waiting on? What is that one thing? And after you write that down, I want you to write these words. God, I surrender it to you. God, I surrender it to you. Because again, let's remember the story of Job. God is still in the business of restoration. He still loves to take broken things and to make them new. He loves to take the mess that we find ourselves in and make it a masterpiece because of his work that he accomplished once and for all on the cross, but how he continues to work through his spirit in our lives today. What's that one thing? God, I surrender it to you. This morning, as we think about the life of Job, reverence, reverence for God leads to a restored life. A restored life. I thought it would be appropriate as we finish this message and also we finish out this series to read Psalm 23 together as we close. Because if you're familiar with this particular psalm, there's a line in there that says, He restores my soul. And so let's be honest, as we go into our our lives this week, there's going to be a lot of external things that are going to come at us. They're going to want to steal our joy and take us away from where God wants us to be. But God is doing a work in our heart. He's restoring our souls. He's transforming us from the inside out. He is making us a new creation. He's sanctifying us in truth and wanting us to look more and more like Jesus Christ. He's restoring every single one of us. So if you would, let's read Psalm 23 together In your season of suffering, hardship, pain, and life, cling to that truth that we serve a God who restores our souls.